Hello, I'm Laura Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Today, we're talking about the sometimes complicated relationship we can have with food. After years of dieting and struggling with body image, Maggie Batista had had enough. She decided to stop dieting and apply her skills as a cook and recipe developer to effectively reset her relationship with food, discovering which ones she really liked and how what she cooked made her feel. She talks about that journey in her latest book, A New Way to Food, and shares recipes that helped her along the way. She's in conversation with Seattle writer and photographer Aaron Goyaga, and they have a very honest conversation about body image, how our families influence our choices and how we see ourselves, and the practices that Maggie engages in now, in addition to cooking, to take care of herself. They talked in the Book Larder Kitchen in June of 2019. Here's Maggie Batista and A New Way to Food. I'm so excited for your new book. I feel like there's so much emotion and I identify with it in so many ways. As someone who also has struggled with eating disorders and body positivity for years. Yeah, tell us a little bit about how it all started. Tell us about your childhood. Oh my gosh. All the way back. I thought you meant how the book started. That was just a few years ago. (laughs) My childhood. I grew up in cultures of very, very generous food. My mother was born and raised in Honduras, Central America, in a little town up in the mountains on a farm, and moved to New York City when she was like in her 30s to be a star, to be a model. Ended up meeting my father, who had just come back from Vietnam. He is an Italian-American immigrant. His mother came over from Naples. So they had a very sort of immigrant-like lifestyle in northern New Jersey. I grew up in Montclair. And it was me and my sister on the first floor. And the second floor was my mother's brother, my uncle, and his wife and three kids. So it was 11 people who lived the first 14 years of my life in a 1,000-square-foot home. So it was definitely like very much the new to America immigrant lifestyle. My father grew up in Newark, New Jersey, so tough, tough, tough Newark, New Jersey. Um, And my mother was um, very happy and optimistic and came to America because she wanted to be an American woman. She wanted to have a career and she wanted to not cook. (laughs) She wanted to go out. They both did a lot of that at the very start of their relationship, but they had kids and Everything kind of ensued after that. Life was full of food and generally full of parties. Like, these are big families, both of them. So there was a little bit of partying during the week, but, like, usually from Saturday morning to Sunday night, like, there was a party in this tiny house. And the relatives would all come over, and they'd make big vats of sangria with the Carlo Rossi jug wine. Have you guys ever (laughs) seen that? Yeah which was very special. Um, And they added a lot of other stuff to it to make it palatable. They loved it. But yeah, there was a lot of food. There was a lot of Italian food. I mean, for my father's mother, Margaret, and she made pasta from scratch and ricotta from scratch and sauce and ziti and 
all sort of Naples, very sort of southern Italian foods, and there's a lot of fresh food on Sundays that was Italian. And on Saturdays, Saturday nights typically was the Latin side of the family. There was a lot of beans and rice and meats that were cooked over the grill, plantains. I felt like Saturday was the day that, like, they could not be American in some way. You know, they could just all gather together and my mother's sister could come over and bring the kids and they could just pretend they were in Honduras or something. And my dad enjoyed it. My dad loved that food. So, um, and then Sundays we went to my grandmother's house and we just always had tons and tons of pasta. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of food, mm-hmm. which made it very complicated because I liked food. I didn't know what it was at the time. I just knew that I liked food and it kept being put in front of me. And I kept getting a lot of mixed messages about food. At sometimes they were like, I hope you clean your plate, eat all this food. And other times they were like, you cannot have any more of this. So it was complicated. Yeah. Complicated, yeah. you know. <laughs> you talk a little bit about your mother and how she yeah. had these, this goal. She was a model and yes. she sort of had stars in her eyes and very beauty driven. Yes. And yes. Uh, in some ways, I'm wondering how that got passed down to you. It was very scary. Like, my mother was like a disco queen, you know, when she came, she came to the States in the 70s. So she had a lot of, like, skimpy clothes that hugged every one of her curves. And she went through cycles of being curvier and being smaller. And she was perennially on a diet. And, you know, we always had Special K in the house because if we partied the night before, the next morning she was having a bowl of Special K because she... T- thought that would make her skinny or help to repair whatever happened the night before. So we had a couple of closets filled with those clothes and they were sort of very scary things. I mean, like they were glittery and sequiny and shiny. I was the oldest of all the kids in the house. So I was the first one to like go through puberty and the first one to realize like I had to look in the mirror and brush my hair and what I looked like. And It was a big deal. Her idea of beauty was not exactly what my idea of beauty was. I don't think I even knew what my... I mean, now I have a sense of what beauty is, but when I was a kid, I had no idea. She was definitely um, beautiful and a little scary. Mm -hmm. I don't think she knew how scary some of those clothes were. (laughs) So I would just put on the baggy T-shirts and the jeans, and she would get so upset with me. Like, didn't understand why I wouldn't try on her clothes and... I just didn't want to be disappointed. They they were never going to fit me. You know, I was pretty much a fat girl since around age eight or 10. And there's a story in the book when I first realized that I was bigger and I was not going to fit into those clothes. But she wanted me to wear the makeup. She wore makeup perennially. She had her hair done all the time. I got my first perm at like 10, I think it was, which is weird. (laughs) Right? Who gets a perm at 10? <laughs> but it was a thing. I know it was like a part of the a style of that era. But it was the early 80s. I was like, uh, what do I need a perm at 10? Like, what grade am I in? Like, who am I trying to impress? But um, we got, I think I got perms like twice a year for like 10 years, wow. maybe. Maybe till I was 18 or 20. Yeah. The Italian side of my family wanted me to have, why don't you have your long nails? And why don't you have the big hair? So they would like... They would juice it up, you know, the backwards combing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So do you think in some way you were kind of rebelling against that? Totally. I'm going to eat and I'm going to wear jeans and T-shirts and they're going to be baggy. I don't want you to see my shape. You can show off your shape. I'm not going to show off my shape. 
trying to rebel a little bit. Yeah. And I was the oldest, too. So I was expected to take care of myself in many ways. Um, so I think that was my way, eating and wearing what I wanted and sort of dispelling, like, rejecting some of those yeah. clothes. I still have some of those clothes of hers, yeah. yes. <laughs> but rejecting it, I can't even get, I mean, like, yeah. I don't think anyone can get into those clothes today. Yeah. yeah. You struggled, right, yeah. with body image and dieting for many years. Can you tell us, after dieting, like, how do you actually go into realizing, oh, I have to accept myself, I have to nourish my body, I will never be this thing that my mother wanted to be, but I need to be my best. I think I'm still learning that every day. Like, it will still be a process. When I turned in the book, I remember the publisher saying, okay, so where's the diet book? And I was like, what do you mean diet book? I told you I was not writing a diet book because we don't need any more diet books. There's plenty of diet books. Let me count them for you. I've tried them all, and I went through a list, and I said, I'm not going to prescribe any one diet to anyone. I've done them all. I want to focus on recounting how I took myself back in some way, how I learned to accept me, how I learned to look at me and not hate every part of me, and how I learned to feel the foods in my body. And I think that sounds strange, but when you're eating really quickly, like for 30 years, I like ate really quickly and didn't want to deal and just stuffed it all in my face. And whatever I taste on the tip of my lips, that was the, that was the satisfaction. That was it. I decided that I was not going to do a diet again. This was about five years ago. I did my last one, which was an elimination diet. I said, I'm going to go on an elimination diet. And I talked to a friend who I mentioned in the book who helped me through it. That process is what helped me regain myself mm -hmm. because I cut everything out and then I added it all back in slowly. And as I added it in slowly, I wrote down everything I felt because all I knew was that I, I, was a, I knew I was a writer and I knew I could cook. So I was like, well, you can make healthy foods for yourself and let's write down how you feel afterward. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, two things. I noticed how the foods felt during and after and the next day. I paid really close attention to that. And that helped me identify which foods made me feel good and which ones not so good. Because the cupcake tastes really good right here, right? And then when it went in, I would be like, whoa. And I thought that was something, I thought that felt good. But when I thought about it and sat with it, it didn't actually feel good when I let myself feel it. And at the same time, the person that helped me also encouraged me to look at my body in the mirror have you guys like looked at your body in the mirror um, and like look at every nook and cranny of your body? I started dry brushing my skin and I was like, why should I dry brush my skin? Like my skin sucks. My body's big. Who cares about it? But I started dry brushing my skin, probably less for the Ayurvedic properties that it provides and more to just be like, oh, I'd like to see my leg and see my knee and what's behind my knee. She's like, I just want you to look at your body and do it every day. And I did it every day, and I was like, oh, my thigh's not so bad. I mean, you see it as this big thing, mm -hmm. you know, but it's carried you around, mm -hmm. and it's carried all this weight, you know, so like it. You don't have to love it yet. Just like it and appreciate it and be grateful that it, like, holds you up mm -hmm. and lets you walk down the street. So it was those things that kind of helped me take me back in some way mm -hmm. and let go of the diet stuff. Mm -hmm and let go of the hating. Yeah. You talk a lot about awareness and taking life, eating and moving and acting and reacting slower allows you to mm -hmm. really control more 
how you're feeling, kind of visualizing how food is going in you and how that's going to be distributed and sort of like the biological aspect of nourishment. In the time I was doing it, when I started to slow down and pay attention to what I was eating, I didn't know that I was suppressing feelings. You don't know that at the time. It took years and it actually was the process of writing this book to be like, Oh, that's what I was doing. I was really sad and I was really angry and I was really scared and I was really overwhelmed. So it took several years of like going back through all that writing, going through therapy too, and talking to people and then becoming, um, now I do a lot of coaching on my own, like learning that most of what we do has a feeling in within, you know, it, it stems from somewhere. And I have now put great effort into calming myself down. You've known me for many years, so I'm generally very hyped up and very active and very, let's do it, let's go, let's go. I put a lot of effort in the last five years of like slowing down, calming myself down, finding ways to take care of myself. I have a whole thing in here on um, self-care and the small things you can do to really be aware in the moment. I do a lot more movement now. I do a lot of breathing work Mm -hmm. now. I think the breath has saved me <laughs> in some ways. Before I go to the fridge and I'm about to go to the fridge and I'm about to go in, I'm like, I need you to just take five minutes or five seconds even and just breathe and just like, tell me what you're feeling right now. Tell yourself what you're feeling right now. Okay, you don't know? All right, go have this. Have what you have, what you want to have. Eat it all down. Then go sit down and sit with the feelings and understand what it was. So I do a lot more of that. And that has just taken time, Mm -hmm. time because I have discovered that I'm more effective as a human being when Mm -hmm. I slow down, Mm -hmm. not just for my body, but for the other people around me, too. Mm -hmm. The way you write about it in the book is so beautiful, but also you have a very practical, instructional way that's worked for you. What I love is the meal prep Part, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've lived in the Instagram world for a very long time. So, you know, I see all those beautiful pictures of 15 dishes that they make on Saturday or Sunday in two hours. So I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that is not going to happen. You know, I don't have children. It's still not going to happen. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, I just can't do it all. But I talk in the book about doing just one thing, just one simple thing on Sunday to make your life a little easier. And I try to, on Sundays, be very conscious of that, whether that means going to the freezer, taking out a tub of beans and defrosting it, something I made before. Great. I have two or three meals. You know, we're going to have enchiladas this week or something like that. So I think it helped me to break it down into simple, simple bits, you know, to take the eating and go through the emotions and then be like, what was I doing? And like break it down into simple bits. So Saturdays and Sundays are very, are much easier for me. I do plan out my dinners generally, Mm -hmm. um, whether I'm making them, whether my husband's making them, he's in the room, he's in the back of the room. Um, (laughs) So I do plan out meals, but I shop differently. My pantry is generally stocked with many things that I can use to make very, very simple meals. My freezer is generally stocked with things. And on Sunday, it's as simple as making a pot of rice. I'll make a pot of rice. And I know that I'll have two or three meals with that rice. And I can just put stuff on top of it. I learned for me, food was very much textural. Like if I could get the crunchy or the sweet here on the tip, I could be satisfied in some way. 
So I still have sweets. There are still sugars in the book, but they're all alternative sugars. They're not refined cane sugar. I do keep cane sugar in my pantry because, hi, I develop recipes and I work in food and sometimes I have to. But in general, I use alternative sugars. I use alternative dairies. I use a lot of fruits and vegetables. I freeze a lot of fruits and vegetables during the height of the season and put stuff away and defrost it when I need it. So I tried to break down the pantry chapter in a different way rather than just a list of everything, just like chunks of how I see my pantry and the priority that it takes and how the animal protein is still in the book. I still enjoy animal protein. It is far lower in my priority list, whereas I used to eat it seven nights a week. We eat it one night a week. So I make dinners and lunches and breakfasts from other things. And there's plenty of other delicious things. You have to cook them. <laughs> yeah, you do list things that you eat every day, yeah. things that you eat occasionally, occasionally, and then once a year. Yeah, well, once a year. What is once a year? That mortadella sandwich. There's a fried mortadella sandwich. You grew up in an Italian household. Like, mortadella is just that thing. Oh. Like, they give you plates of it, like plates of mortadella in Italy. In Italy, yes. It's wonderful. And I had a lot of bologna sandwiches when I was a kid, fried bologna sandwiches. So I took mortadella and I fried in a pan. My mother would hide the cookies, but make me the fried bologna sandwiches. I don't know how that was better than the chocolate sandwich cookies, um, but it was. So I still eat those mortadella sandwiches once a year to have it and enjoy it. I don't eat them on a regular basis. I don't like nitrates. My personal research for me is that they're not good for me. Uh, and that's, I think, the point of the book is, mm -hmm. this book is about what I did for me. So I'm not prescribing what you should do for you. Mm -hmm. I'm just, just prescribing that you should figure out what works for you. There are a lot of diet gurus who want to tell you that this is right or this is right. It may be right for you. They weren't right for me. Mm -hmm. and simple. You have a chapter about dining with your partner. There's a whole chapter oh. with my partner. Yes. Dieting with a partner. I've written a lot of pieces, too, for, like, the kitchen about eating in sync or differently yeah. with a partner. I feel like I make a lot of plant-based comfort foods for me and my partner or for me and, like, friends that come mm -hmm. over. You know, the foods I share... Is, you know, might be baked ziti classically. So I have a gooey baked ziti in the book that has no dairy in it. That tastes amazing that I've had chefs come over and taste. They're like, wow, like you could do that. I was like, you could do that. It just takes a little extra time. I feel like the foods we share with each other are comfort foods yeah. in general, don't we? I mean, I do make salads for people too. And I, I'll make anything in the book for people. But I found that um, when we're, you know, sitting around a table together, there were just a lot of comfort foods that we wanted to have, and I wanted to find different ways to make them. So what is your comfort? Yeah, baked ziti still feels okay. comforting to me. I've changed it in the book so that I can eat it and enjoy it. My most, if you ask me what I want to eat most Saturday nights, especially if I'm not, I'm not cooking, <laughs> I would say... I would ask my husband to make the seafood and fennel paella. Paella oh, yeah. is very comforting to me. Yeah. And uh, I know that different cultures make it with different things. And I just keep mine with seafood and with fennel and a few other things. But, you know, I grew up really hating rice. Uh, we had so much of it in my wow. house. We, we always had it. Like there was always orange rice in the house. And so you kind of got sick of it after a while. My mother would be like, just eat rice, you'll be fine. I'm like, no, that's not, that's not enough. And I'm over the rice. I want potatoes. I want some other starch. But now as I've grown up, like paella 
I, I, something happens, I think, when you get a little older, like you call back to those foods that maybe you loved or you hated, but you, you want them back in your life somehow. And, and that was one of them. Do you want to share a few tips to get started on kind of the journey for people? I write about it in the book. Yeah. Some of the tips. Forget exercise. <laughs> uh, I lost close to 100 pounds to by forgetting exercise. Well, listen, we're all different, right? Yeah. And we, can, we all have a capacity for different things, and we all have different things that we went through. And I had been told for so long that I had to eat less and move more. And okay, I, I just, maybe I can't multitask in that way. It just mm-hmm. always seemed too much for me. I would never stick to both of them. So I decided to just focus on food, and I focused on food for three or four years. And it's only in the last two years that exercise has come into my life now, mm-hmm. after I feel like I've sort of grasped, made some of my changes into more lifelong things. Um, Now I move. So I suggest that people don't stress out about having to do both simultaneously, choosing what works for you, starting something, and not uh, not listening to... Not beating yourself up because you can't obtain all the things, right? I decided to, like, keep everything in one calendar, my work and my eating um, and my movement and what I did for my health life. I made health, uh, uh, I I like to say that I kind of made it a full-time job. I made it something that I thought about just as much as I thought about my work. I used to prioritize my work for, you know, almost for 30 years I prioritized my work above everything else. If something had to get done, I had to go in earlier, I had to stay late, and I don't do that anymore. I put self-care, taking care of me is my number one priority, and I'm very lucky that I can say that I do that. But I will schedule my yoga at 7 a.m. and do it at home, you know, or I will go to the doctor. Going to the doctor Mm -hmm. is prioritizing you and just making sure I get that appointment in and explaining to someone that I can't do this meeting at this time because I have to go and do this. And I've stopped feeling bad about all of that, too. Mm-hmm. I think there was a time when you feel bad about prioritizing you. Mm-hmm. I'm over it. I don't know what age that happens. Maybe you all know. But <laughs> I'm just over like having to apologize and feel bad that I need to go to the doctor or that I need to go to therapy or that I need to go do some movement of some kind because I know I and all of you will be much better off if I get that time in. So... No question, it is a place of privilege. And at the same time, there are tiny ways to integrate it into your life bit by bit Mm -hmm. um, and just change your thinking about it. If somebody comes to you and says, you know, I'm struggling right now, what is the first thing that they should look at in their lives or think about? I advise people to focus on what they're feeling and sit with their feelings and see if they can find time to be aware of their feelings if they're struggling. And to, I probably would ask someone to, if you want to talk about your feelings, you can talk about your feelings with me, or you could write them down, write them down somewhere. So in my book, you know, since the book has come out, I have received so many messages from people saying, I am struggling right now. People say this and this and this to me. I can't do this career anymore because I'm so big, or I can't do this because I can't move, or I'm so tired all the time. And I'm like, so how do you feel? Like, talk to me about how you feel. Like... You know, how do you feel in your day-to-day life? And try and understand those feelings. And I know that for me, there was a lot of sadness and anger and frustration and grief and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I ended up talking to someone about it, talking to me about it first, and then talking to someone about it. But the first thing I would say is to find a way to prioritize your well-being like you'd prioritize your partner or your child. 
or your job. Mm -hmm. And to think of it first, if you can, mm -hmm. even if it's just for a moment in the day, even if it's just for 30 seconds in the day, you know, what's going to help you get through today yeah. in the moment? What's yeah. going to help you right now? Yeah. yeah, and see if you can think about that, prioritize that somehow. Mm -hmm. This journey has forced me and motivated me to figure out how to be more aware in the moment. Um, rather than live in the past, what happened back then, I'm upset about this, I'm upset about that, mm -hmm. or live in this unknown future. Mm -hmm. This might happen, this could happen. Mm -hmm. Hi, can we just focus yeah. today? Yeah. What do you need? Well, thank you so much for writing it. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me about it. Do you want to open it to questions? Can you just speak to the trust that you had to put into yourself? I write about this in the book, tuning out the universe was a big step for me in building up the trust in me, forgetting what anybody else around me said, you know, forgetting the, the Jane Fonda workout tapes I saw growing up or the Suzanne Summers that thing that my mother had, like four of them, you know, <laughs> the thigh master, right? My mother had them. I tried them. The trust built when I stopped talking to people about my food and my food choices. And when I realized that when I order the pasta in the restaurant and I'm sitting around across from someone and they gave me a look or they made a statement or something that had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with me. And I didn't know that when I was 20. Like, I had no idea. I didn't know that when I was 15. I didn't know that when I was 30. Like, it has taken time to learn that um, whatever anyone else thinks of me, I know it sounds a little bit cliche, but it's true. Whatever anyone thinks of me has absolutely nothing to do with me. That tuning out kept me just in my head with me, and that helped me listen to me above anybody else. You know, because I have this stream of conversation in my head, right? That's what you have. Oh, if I eat that pasta right now. But now the conversation is, if you want that pasta, just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. Stop when you don't want any more. Be thoughtful about it. And if you're eating it for a reason, for a specific reason, because of a feeling, investigate that feeling. You're worth investigating that feeling. Did your relationship with social media change at all as you went through this journey? And can you tell us about that? Or as you, I guess it's always a journey, right? But as you're on this journey. Yeah, it's always a journey. But I found that that very first year, I was on a hardcore elimination diet for almost a year, for about a year, roughly, where I slowly, over the course of the 12 months, added things back in. Um, and that was when social media changed for me. I did a lot more curation of my feed and I unfollowed so many different things that I had been following for a long, long time. The big diet brands, you know, I had to get that out of my life. There's this process of um, unlearning that happens and I was lucky that it happened and it's still an ongoing process. I think it will be happening for several more decades, right? But getting the diet culture out of my feed and the perfection out of my feed and filling it with body positivity in all its shapes and forms, because I think there's all sorts of slivers of body positivity, right? And some people have issues with, with the, you know, there's ranges of body shapes. And I know that there are people who have issues with, with bigger people who are smaller and bigger people who are bigger. Like, it's just there's this whole thing. And I know that, like, fat shaming is really fat hatred in some way more than anything. So I had to fill my feed with 
a spectrum of body positivity to learn what was suitable for me, learn what felt good to me. And I'm still learning. I'm writing on a regular basis, and that helps me sort of explore all these new feelings that come to the surface. And I'm unlearning all this stuff, which some people may not want to do that, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But for me, I had to do some of that, you know? So, yeah. But social media has also connected you to, to everyone, yeah, been, who have been so helpful. In so this my coach yeah. Sherry, who helped me through that elimination diet, I got connected to her through my friend Sarah Kiefer, who is the Vanilla Bean yeah. book, and uh, I, we were just comparing notes, and I was talking, and she connected me to Sherry. Sherry lived in the Midwest. I lived in Boston. We got connected. Sherry's now one of my dearest forever friends. Social media has also connected me to a new world of people who, who are f even further ahead, who have unlearned diet culture 10 years ago, you know? Mm -hmm. And they're teaching me so much too. And I go to events and form communities of people. My friends online are just as important as my friends that I see in real life. And they've really um, helped me learn and unlearn. This also leads into your new podcast, which is also about not just food and body positivity, but reinventing yourself and your career or... Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's called Made Fresh. It's the Made Fresh podcast. And we have five, what, three episodes out, two more coming out in the next couple of weeks. And then we're recording a bunch this summer. But it sprung from, I founded a group called the Fresh Collective, which is a group of female entrepreneurs. Um, and uh, the podcast is... Lee Belanger, who's also a cookbook author and a chef and a content developer, and myself talking about um, work, culture, relationships, things that women are in our phase of life or just before our phase of life or just after our phase of life care about, and food is central to the story. So we talk about food on every podcast. Um, even if we're talking about self-care or booze or social media, we always talk about food in there. And um, we're both storytellers in different ways, so... They're short, they're sweet, they're on wherever you get your podcast, iTunes and <laughs> Google and Spotify. Yeah. 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 How or why did you get inspired to make cookbooks? Oh, gosh. That's a hard one. <laughs> I, I like food a lot. Uh, um, and um, I, I had always wanted to be a writer. So I um, wrote a lot when I was young, and I went to journalism school, and so I knew I wanted to write, but I was in startup tech for like 15 years, um, not writing at all, and then suddenly I decided to start a blog 12 years ago and start writing again um, and start talking about food, and I talked about food so much that I started a business around it, and then um, I talked a lot about food and then decided, worked with an editor and decided to write a book about food. So um, I didn't know it would be about food. I just knew I wanted to write someday. I feel really lucky that I've written a book about food. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's really fun. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It's more work than people think it is. <laughs> I have a whole podcast coming out in two weeks about what it feels like to write cookbooks and how hard it is. And it sounds like it's going to be fun, but it's not fun. It's not always fun. But it is fun to write. Like, it is fun. I think I uh, want to share and feel understood on many levels, and writing allows me to do that. So if I write something and you relate to it, 
and you say something to me, we both feel understood in some way, and like my shoulders relax a little, and I feel like more at home in the world. So it's important to me to write, but it just kind of happened gradually. This one took um, almost three years. <laughs> it's a long yeah, time. It's a long time. It's a long time. Yeah. The first book was a little less, but it took a long time. Erin and Maggie, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Many thanks to Maggie Batista for visiting us in Seattle. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of A New Way to Food and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. If you visit us in person, mention that you heard about the book on the podcast and you'll get 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.